0: I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 9. We're going to continue here in our series through the gospel of Mark. We're going to look at the first 29 verses of Mark 9. And for the sake of time this morning, I'm going to read verses 2 through 8. So I invite you to stand with me as we consider this passage together and we stand to honor the reading of God's word. Mark records this event for us for the life of Jesus. He writes, and after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Father, we thank you this morning for our opportunity to gather as the body of Christ for the encouragement that we receive from one another as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together about the birth of our Savior Jesus as we are reminded of the preparation from before the foundation of the world for you to send your only begotten son to save a sinner such as I. And we thank you, God, that from this congregation are our members around the world proclaiming the hope that we find in Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Would you bless their efforts, we pray. Father, we ask as we turn our attention to your word this morning that you will instruct us You will help us God in our unbelief help us to believe in Jesus name amen you may be seated this morning's sermon from Mark chapter 9 which is going to cover two events in the life of Jesus is entitled divinity and humanity and that's what we will see this morning we will see contrasting ideas of the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of man. Early in the church's development, over the first couple hundred years after Jesus, the question arose, what really formed the substance of the Christ? Was Jesus really God eternal, or was he something else. And so in A.D. 325, not all that long as far as history goes from the early church, the what was called the Council of Nicaea, this was the first council of the church after the legalization of Christianity some 12 years before in Rome. The reason they called the Council of Nicaea was because there was a priest in Alexandria Egypt named Arius, who was teaching a heresy that is still today known as Arianism. Arius was teaching that Jesus was a different substance than the Father, that he was created in time by the Father, and therefore was not co-eternal with the Father, but was subordinate to him. And this teaching began to spread throughout the church, and so for the first time since The Jerusalem Council in the book of Acts, leaders from various churches across three continents gathered together at Nicaea to discuss what the church should believe on this subject. One of the bishops that was called to this council was a bishop from Myra, which is a port city, or was at that time, a port city in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. His name was St. Nicholas. Yes, that one. St. Nick made the journey. He's a real guy, okay? St. Nick made the journey to Nicaea, not as a follower of Arianism, but as one who believed in the full eternal deity of Jesus. And as the council progressed, Arius, who was the founder of this heresy, was not invited because he was not a bishop, but he was in Nicaea, and eventually they brought him before the council to read his statement, to make his case. Now, so far, all of this has been historically documented. This next part of the story, let's just say, I really want to be true. After Arius rose, legend says, to speak this, what the council decreed to be heresy to the bishops who were gathered, Nicholas, who just a few years before had been imprisoned in Turkey for years for preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ, rose, walked over to Arius and slapped him across the face Constantine had him defrocked and imprisoned again, only this time for a matter of days before being released again. Now, I don't know if Santa Claus actually slapped heretics or not, but it kind of makes me happy. I don't just tell this story because it's Christmas time and it involves St. Nicholas, but out of the Council of Nicaea, comes the doctrine that the church has held true for 2,000 years and written down for 1,700. In part, the Nicene Creed, which came out of that council, reads that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. The church of God for centuries has believed this truth, that Jesus is God. And as you'll see in the main point of our sermon today, that is what we believe, that Jesus is God. And the second story will tell us that we are not. Jesus is God. We are not. So we will see these two contrasting ideas this morning. The first, the divinity of Jesus on display. Mark 9 begins with Jesus' foretelling of the glory that is to come. Some people connect the first verse of Mark 9 and probably Uh, In the grammatical structure of your Bible, the first verse of Mark 9 is connected back to the last verses of Mark 8 because they happen at the same time. But what Jesus is talking about in verse 1 is what is to happen that we've already read in verses 2 through 8. Look at what he says in verse 1. Mark tells us that he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now because this is connected back to Mark chapter 8, let's remind ourselves of what we have seen over the last couple of weeks in Mark 8. Jesus after Mark, after recording several repetitive signs for us that Jesus is the Messiah, he travels to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples where he asks them, who do the people say that I am? And they tell him who the people says it is. None of the answers were correct. But then Peter answering Jesus' the second question, who do you say that I am, makes a credible profession of faith. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that God had promised to send. Jesus then speaks frankly and plainly with his disciples in foretelling of the son of man's suffering and death in verses 31 through 33. And then he tells them what it means for a disciple to follow the son of man, that not only is Jesus going to the cross, but that we to follow him must also take up our crosses, our crosses. That that's what it means to follow Jesus. To lose one's own life for the sake of following Him as Lord. And it is in this context that Jesus says there are some standing here who will not taste death, physical death, that is, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now there are wild ideas about what Mark 9:1 could mean, but it's very clear particularly because the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell kind of a chronological, event, a chronological story of Jesus' life, all agree that these events happen in order. If you read them in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, you'll get different details from the events, but the order is always the same. And so what Jesus is saying here to his disciples in this first verse is that some of you are about to see something special. It's the progressive fulfillment of biblical prophecy as we have considered other biblical prophecies during my preaching ministry here. You'll know I've always been a fan of explaining things in a a progressive sense, in a now, not yet, that biblical prophecy can be made true and yet not fully so, that we see it progress over over the course of time. And I think that's what we see here, that in just one short week, this prophecy would be true. It would be further fulfilled at the resurrection of Jesus, at the ascension of Jesus, and even at the destruction of Jerusalem some 40 years later. What Jesus is telling them here at the end of Mark 8, moving into Mark 9, after this confession of faith and the cost of him teaching on the cost of discipleship is that some of them are going to have their faith-made sight. And one week later... Is true. Look at verses two and three. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Now, notice that Jesus had said, Some standing here. It's Peter, James, and John. And he led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth could bleach them. The story of Jesus' transfiguration is the story of his divinity on display that Peter, James, and John are allowed to see something that the other disciples are not allowed to see. They're allowed to see something in that moment that the other people in the crowds who had followed Jesus, even the enemies of Jesus, were not allowed to see. They are taken up on this high mountain, and Jesus steps momentarily back into the glory that he had put aside to come to earth. Peter, James, and John are allowed to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And Mark makes clear for us that this is not some show, that this is not something that any human could have done. It's why he ends that verse three with, and no one on earth could bleach them. That Peter, James, and John see something that is unearthly. They see something that is unreplicatable that no one could create on earth what they see they see a glimpse of heaven they see a glimpse of glory they see Jesus who is God in all his glory this is important for us it, it it's not a mistake. The first time the Christian church gathers leaders together to determine a doctrine for the church is is, is the subject, is the deity of Jesus. It is foundational to what we believe. If Jesus is not God, then he is not able to be our Savior and Lord. If Jesus is not God, then he cannot be the perfect sacrifice for sins. If Jesus is not God, whom he claimed to be, then he is a lunatic and a liar. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Colossae in the second chapter of that letter says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says that any doctrine that denies the full deity of Jesus is another gospel, Any group of people that would seek to teach anything less than Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, is what he describes in verse 8. It is philosophy and empty deceit. It is human tradition. It is according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. So many times when the church of God has erred into damnable heresies, it has began with a redefining of who Jesus is. It's happened throughout history, and it still happens in our day. There are well-known examples of this. There are entire denominations that would call themselves Christians but do not hold to the deity of Jesus. They would seek to rewrite the truth of Scripture and make Jesus less than who the Bible says he is and understand this. That is another gospel. This is a first-order belief. For those of you that have been through our Connect class, you have heard one of our pastors teach on first, second, and third order doctrine, the deity of Jesus rests firmly in that first category. You either believe that Jesus is God or you believe in something the Bible does not teach and therefore cannot claim the name of Christian. Jesus shows to Peter, James, and John on that mountain his true nature the nature of God himself it doesn't end there though because next Elijah and Moses appear and bear witness to the divinity of Jesus look with me in verses four through six and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus and Peter said to Jesus Rabbi it is good that we are here let us make three tents one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah for he did not know what to say for they were terrified Just work backwards for a moment here. Put yourself in Peter, James, and John's position. They are terrified. Peter doesn't know what to say, but that doesn't stop Peter from saying things. (laughs) Some of you have that same problem, don't you? I don't know what to say, but i got to say something. And so, obviously terrified, right? They're seeing something that is unearthly. And now, Moses and Elijah have appeared. These two Old Testament saints are now in their midst, and they're doing something just so mundane. They're standing there with Jesus in all his glory, just kind of chatting it up. They're just talking, it says, at the end of verse 4. Now, why? Before we look at what Peter says, why? Why is this important that Elijah and Moses appear at the transfiguration of Jesus? Because Elijah and Moses represent the law and the prophets. The law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah, all bear witness to Jesus as the Christ. Moses and Elijah representing the old covenant. Moses, the lawgiver. Elijah, the prophetic restorer, are forerunners of Jesus. Jesus is a better Moses, ushering in a better law, one of grace. He is a better Elijah, not saying what will happen, but be the fulfillment of what others have said would happen. And they are talking with him. What are they talking with him about? I believe they're talking with him about the work that he is doing to fulfill their work. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Old Testament and the New Testament do not stand in contradiction to one another. One is the fulfillment of the other personified in Jesus who is God. So Old Testament scripture is Christian scripture because it tells us about the one who fulfills it. And here, Moses and Elijah appear with the transfigured Jesus before a terrified Peter, James, and John, showing that it is the law and the prophets who speak to and about the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, when I used to read the fifth verse of this, I used to be somewhat critical of Peter. I would read this passage, and I'd think, oh, Peter, I would have joked about him having things to say. I think many of us probably would look for something to say and probably say something silly. But let's be honest. I'm I'm really not. The the older I get, the less critical I become of Peter in this passage. Because why in the world wouldn't Peter want to stay there? Look what he says. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. (laughs) This is not a bad place to be. I am happy that I got to see this. Now, this is the same Peter who thought they were dying in a boat. This is the same Peter who bickered back and forth about who forgot to bring bread. This is the same Peter who later will deny Jesus in a courtyard when accused by, well, a little servant girl for being a follower of Christ. But here, Peter sees it with his eyes and says, it is good that we are here. Then he makes a proposition. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. This, I think, is where Peter errs. The one thing he gets wrong is the equality of his statement. He says, let's build three, when he he says here, let's build three tents, the word he uses is tabernacles. That, That same word that was the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament that moved with the people of God until they built the temple in Jerusalem. So Peter says, let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. It's there that Peter errs because Moses, while a great representation of the law does not deserve a tabernacle. Elijah, while a great representation of the prophets does not deserve a tabernacle. They are not equal to Jesus. They are forerunners of Jesus. They are ones who point towards Jesus. It is Jesus alone standing in all his glory that deserves a tabernacle. And so, yes, Peter errs here some, but who can blame him? Here he stands before these great fathers of the faith and the glorified Son of God standing before him. And it is decades later, at the very end of his life, that Peter will remember this event, drawing on this event, to ensure that the next generation believe in the deity of Jesus too. Remember what he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. It was important for Peter as he is about to go to his death in Rome and as he writes to churches that he helped disciple to next generation of Christians coming up behind them that they believed that it was not a myth what they saw. It was true that what what the disciples had communicated to the Christian church about the majesty of Jesus is truth. But it is not only Moses and Elijah, that appear there. It is not only Peter who speaks, but next we see, as Peter recalled there in 2 Peter, the father himself bears witness of the divinity of Jesus. We read in verse 7 and 8, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus. If you've ever needed encouragement to listen to the teachings of Jesus, hear it from God the Father Himself. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. To be the Son of God is to be God. And we should listen to Him. Jesus is worth listening to, not because He was a good teacher, not because He could tell a good story, not because He could present mysteries to people that they couldn't figure out, but because he is God. The same a voice appears at the beginning of his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, at his baptism, we're told the heavens are opened and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. And he said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. At the beginning of his ministry, the Father speaks to the son himself here in the middle of his ministry the father speaks to his disciples and says listen to him now the transfiguration is done jesus is all that is left moses and elijah have disappeared there is no need for tabernacles the voice from heaven is gone the radiance has faded away and now they see jesus again in human form standing before And they have a conversation coming down the mountain where Jesus reveals to him that all that has needed to be accomplished has come. He says in verse 9, and they were coming down the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen. Once again, the divine secret, as we have seen now probably dozens of times in the gospel of Mark, he says "To to not tell anyone until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So Peter's not breaking the command of Jesus by telling us about this in 2 Peter, He was just given a clock, so he waited out the clock. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They still didn't understand it, even though a week earlier Jesus had told them about his death and rising from the dead, they were still blind to what this truly meant, and so they asked a question because they had been taught some things in first century Judaism. They had been taught some things about the coming of the Messiah, and Peter has professed faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but aren't there still some things that have to happen? And this is what they ask. He said to them, or no, sorry, they ask in verse 11, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? If you're here, we just saw Elijah up there, why do our teachers, the scribes, why, why do our religious scholars, Jewish scholars in the first century, tell us that Elijah's got to come first? And Jesus answers. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he would, should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, let's just stop there in verse 12. Jesus both affirms what the scholars of his day had taught, that Elijah, that Elijah must come. He says they're right on that. But then he says they got something else wrong. And how is it written that the Son of Man did, that he should, be, should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? This they did not see, even though the Old Testament was clear. Even though there were numerous prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer and yet even die, They missed that because they were looking for a political ruler. They were looking for someone to liberate them from Rome. So they ignored that part and only focused on the forerunner. But Jesus says the forerunner has come. Look at verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So when did Elijah come? He came in the form of John the Baptist. Now that's not to say that John the Baptist is Elijah. John the Baptist represents Elijah. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. That the prophets, the work of the prophets over the period of centuries is fulfilled in the work of John the Baptist. That yes, the prophets needed to come. And they did. And they came as John the Baptist. And They did, Jesus says, whatever they pleased to him. At this point, John has been beheaded because the people rejected him. So all that was necessary for the Messiah to come and fulfill the law and the prophets as the son of God, the sent one from God, the Messiah himself has come and Peter, James, and John have seen him in all his glory. That Jesus And his deity is revealed to them. And now, coming down the mountain, the humanity of man is also on display. So what's going to happen in verses 14 through 29 is Jesus has come down the mountain. It's an overnight event with Peter, James, and John. They're now coming down the mountain the next morning. And if you've ever experienced something like this in your own life, you probably have. You have this like really great experience, something happens and it's really great in life, spiritual or not, just sometimes this happens in life. And the very next thing that happens is just like, ugh, you know what I mean? He's like, well, welcome back to, you know, it's like you have a really great vacation, you come back to work and it's like, welcome back, right? Well, that's what happens. This is like Jesus's welcome back moment, Okay. Because he's going to come down and he's going to find his disciples bickering back and forth with some scribes and unable to heal a boy who was demon-possessed. Because apart from Jesus, the disciples are unable to heal this boy who's been brought to them. Look, look with me, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So just stop for a minute. The first thing Jesus comes into is a fight between his disciples and those who had kind of developed into his enemies, right? These people who who had come from Jerusalem, teamed up with the Pharisees, and were making accusations against Jesus, were trying to trip Jesus up. Well, now they've defined Jesus' disciples without Jesus. And this is kind of some low-hanging fruit for them, right? And so here they are, bickering back and forth. And this is what Jesus, Peter, James, and John walk into. It's like, what in the world's going on here? Well, verse 15 tells, And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, was great... Was greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast him out, and they were not able. You see, apart from Jesus, the disciples are powerless. Now, this isn't a lesson in proximity. In, in the Gospel of Luke, where, we, where Luke records the sending out of the 72, the, di- the disciples plus some followers of Jesus, it precedes this event. And during that sending out period of Jesus' disciples, they were able to heal and cast out demons, and they were not within close proximity to Jesus. So this isn't a lesson in proximity. It's a lesson in faith. Likely, the disciples had already resorted to some type of formulamatic way of healing that they thought well it worked this time so I'm going to do it the same way the exact same way and hopefully it's going to work out again but in this case it wasn't working out they weren't able to do it because apart from Jesus apart from faith in Jesus they were would be unable to do it and Jesus shows that faith is the key here that faith is man's only hope not only in this one specific instance where this man is desiring the healing of his son, but that faith is the, is the great hope for mankind, the only hope for mankind. Pick up with me in verse 19. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now just stop there for a minute and make note that the subject matter here is faith. What's on display, though, is the disciples' inability to heal this boy because they are in their humanity. And on display is the scribes' disagreement with them because they don't trust that Jesus can do what he says he can do because they don't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. So it with the transfiguration of Jesus is this messy human squabble over who has the power to do what and their inability to do it. And you can kind of hear the scribes, see, I told you you couldn't do it. And the disciples growing angrier and angrier with one another over their inability to do it. And Jesus, though, tells us what the problem is. Oh, faithless generation, the problem is their faith. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his, his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Again, faith is the issue here. Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. And Jesus says to him, if you can, what do you mean? If you can't, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, cried out, and said, "I believe. Help my unbelief." And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, "You mute and deaf." Spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. The center of this conversation is the the man saying to Jesus, if you can, do this. And Jesus saying, what do you mean if I can Those who believe all things are possible. And the man cries out to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Remember, Jesus is God. We are not. (laughs) And and sometimes our unbelief is so palatable to us that, that we just we, we, we feel it. We, we know that our, that our flesh draws us away from Jesus. We know that we are prone to wander. As the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's what our flesh draws us to. And here this man, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, God himself, makes us able to believe and then he demonstrates his power by doing that which his disciples could not do heals the boy now again matthew mark luke all three record these events in the same order but they give us varying details matthew gets right to the point with jesus and his disciples because the disciples ask here and they're going to do it in mark 2 but they ask here what what was the problem why couldn't we do this And Jesus gives, obviously, an expanded answer. And Mark Mark records one version and Matthew records another. And in Matthew 17, Jesus says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. You see, faith is the answer to our humanity. Us crying out, I believe, help my unbelief, is the answer to our humanity. It's Jesus in his divinity helping us in our flesh and in our humanity to do that which we cannot do. It is faith, even faith the size of a mustard seed, that allows us to follow Jesus in a way that we would not be able to do if left on our own. Mark records a little different ending to this for us but I think the same really saying much of the same thing where he points his followers to prayer as their connection to the divine verse 28 says and when they entered the house his disciples asked him privately why why could we not cast him out what's our problem and he said to them this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer now just to be clear mark 929 is not telling us that there was some special kind of demon that needed some special prayer mixed into the formula to be able to cast him out and if only the disciples knew what that specific prayer would have been and they would have worked that into their formula that they would have been successful. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is connecting the previous event to the lack of faith of his disciples and because prayer demonstrates our faith. Prayer is is the spiritual discipline that connects humans to god it is that thing that god has given us to connect to him it is the demonstration of our faith our prayer life correlates to our belief that if we believe that God can do something then we ask God to do it if we think we can do something on our own then we don't see a need in God doing anything now we say as a church and our core values our core value by the way that we're, that corresponds to our core belief about what we believe about God, we then have a corresponding core value that says we value worship and prayer. Why? Because prayer is what connects our great need to the divine, to the power and presence of God working through us. Now if I could, for just maybe 90 seconds. Let me pastor our church for a minute. Occasionally throughout the year, we host together um, prayer gatherings. And they are the least attended gathering of our church, no matter what. Our members' meetings have more folks. Our worship nights have more people clearly our Sunday mornings, even our Wednesday night equip classes. The least attended of all of the things that we do corporately together is the few times a year that we say, let's come together and pray. We did one this last Wednesday night and we did it in this room. And the reason we did it in this room because we want the congregation, which can only fit in this room, to come and to be together. And it really took up just a few pews right here. Church, church, we say we value prayer. Do we? Do we really value prayer as a church? Do we see prayer as a as an essential component to connecting us, the congregation of God full of humans, to God himself? I hope we do. But I'll just be honest, I wonder And I ask this question of myself just as I'm asking of you. Here's what I believe. I believe we need to do a better job of praying. So let me tell you something that we are going to do. This is new information to you. Starting in January, the third Sunday of every month, we are going to have an evening worship service together. This is not something we've done for a very, very, very long time. I'm not sure when. It was before my time as pastor here when this church had evening services. We're not going back to weekly evening services, but the third Sunday of every month is going to be evening service. We're going to sing together. We're going to be able to talk about things that are happening in our church, some of the things we don't necessarily have time to do on Sunday mornings. We're going to have a brief sermon, about a 15-minute sermon um, during that service. But we're going to dedicate a portion of that service to us praying together. To our congregation pray. And this is one of the reasons that I want to do it. I think we together as a church need to be challenged in our prayers. We need to heed the teaching of Jesus. That prayer is important because prayer connects us in our humanity to God. So when we have that first one, it's going to be on January the 15th. I hope you will be here. And prayer will not be the only thing that we do, but it will be an important thing we do. And I hope you will join us so what? That was my pastor moment. I'll go back to the text. So what? Point of application. Faith in Jesus as God in the flesh is our only hope for salvation. Faith in Jesus as God in the flesh is our only hope for salvation. We connect these two stories, and here's what we recognize we are human, Jesus is God, and there is something missing in between. Because of our sin, we cannot be connected to God. He is holy, we are not. That's his divinity demands holiness. Our humanity shows our sinfulness. What bridges that gap? It is faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ who came to save sinners so that we might be right with God. In John chapter 1, that one gospel, of the gospel account of the life of Jesus that stands as unique. The other three, I call them synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John stands somewhat as unique. It's written differently in a different style than the other three. And John begins with this argument, really all of John 1 begins with this argument, Jesus is God, that's John 1. Listen to what he says in the midst of that chapter. John writes, in the word, that's Jesus by the way, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, What John describes here in John 1, 14 through 18 is a theological treatise of what John saw with his eyes on the mountain. This is the same John, Peter, James, and John who were taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And John describes to us theologically what he saw in the Transfiguration. He saw the word that had become flesh. And that word that he uses, dwelt among us, is the Greek word for tabernacle. It's the same word that Peter said, let's build some tents, let's build some tabernacles. Listen to what John says. John says the eternal word, the eternal son of God, God himself came and tabernacled. He didn't need Peter building a tent. He had a tent, it was his body. And who bore witness about him? One, John the Baptist, the fulfillment of the prophets, but also the law which was given through Moses. That, that which John saw on the mountain, he makes a theological argument here in John 1 and says, Jesus is God. And what has he come to do? He has come, if you connect verse 14 to verse 18, to make him known. Now what does it mean that he has come to make him known? He has come so that you and I in our humanity can be Restored to holy, almighty God by the work of Jesus. And this is accomplished personally in your life when you believe, when you have faith, when you trust in the person and work of Jesus to do that which you cannot do. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God put on flesh so that we could see God and we see him in Jesus, and we access him through Jesus, and it is this faith that allows us to do so. So what do we do? We cry out like this Father did, I believe, help my unbelief. That should be the cry of every Christian in this room today. And I pray that if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, that that is the cry of your heart for the first time this morning. I believe, help me in my unbelief. Word become flesh so that I might see God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. Not just a good teacher, not a spiritual guru, not not even one that would be a king or drive out the Romans, but the word made flesh, born in a stable, living a perfect life, ultimately dying a sinner's death so that we may have life. We thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us by sending your son for us. Help us, we pray, in our unbelief. Thank you that by faith given as a gift to us, we can see you and be right with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Church family, we respond to this truth now as we stand together and sing.